Welcome to Counter Apologetics. Welcome to Counter Apologetics. I'm your host, Emerson Green, and today we'll be discussing moral luck and free will skepticism. Quote, As the external determinants of what someone has done are gradually exposed, and their effect on consequences, character, and choice itself, it becomes gradually clear that actions are events, and people, things. Eventually nothing remains which can be ascribed to the responsible self and we are left with nothing but a portion of the larger sequence of events, which can be deplored or celebrated, but not blamed or praised. End quote. Thomas Nagel, 1979 Most believers passionately defend the idea that you possess robust metaphysical freedom, and therefore a deep sense of moral responsibility for your actions and character. God doesn't send anyone to hell, you send yourself to hell. All human beings are basically little unmoved movers, and you send yourself to hell through your free choices, your choice to sin, your choice to reject the free gift of salvation. All that is perfectly within your control. But what if who you are, your actions, and even your choice to accept or reject salvation came down to different kinds of luck? How can one deserve eternal conscious torment if ultimate control is an illusion, and we don't have robust metaphysical freedom? but rather our beneficiaries, or victims, of luck. Even if we did possess radical freedom, there's still a genuine question as to whether anyone deserves eternal conscious torment. But in order for the basic Christian narrative about sin, redemption, and salvation to make any sense, the case needs to be made against moral luck, specifically the thesis that luck swallows everything, as Galen Strawson puts it. Most Christians don't subscribe to universalism or predestination. Yet those seem to be the only Christian doctrines that provide an answer to the challenge of moral luck. My guest today is Aaron Rabinowitz of Embrace the Void and Philosophers in Space. He teaches at Rutgers University in the philosophy department. We discuss Thomas Nagel's article on moral luck, moral judgment versus moral responsibility, whether it's ever justified to hate a person, and free will skepticism generally. Aaron and I first spoke a month or so back on the Right to Reason podcast about consciousness, and we'll be continuing that conversation on Walden Pod, where he's also subjected to a realist-anti-realist lightning round. There's a little bit of a choppy connection, nothing too bad though. So without further ado, let's get to my conversation with Aaron Rabinowitz. Okay, so I'm going to start with a quote from Bernard Williams. When I first introduced the expression moral luck, I expected to suggest an oxymoron. End quote. So why would anyone think the term moral luck is an oxymoron? The reason I think would be that it, the idea behind morality is that you have some kind of responsibilities. People tend to associate morality and responsibility in a close kind of way. And responsibility seems to depend on things being independent of luck 
And if there is no such thing that's independent of luck, then you seem to sort of have this problem arise where um, nothing is under our control and therefore there is no such thing as moral responsibility. So it seems paradoxical to say that one could be morally responsible for luck, but that seems to be the situation we are trapped in. Right. Like you'd think people couldn't be held morally accountable for something that's not their fault or, you know, outside their control. But if Mm -hmm. everything is due to luck, then, you know, there seems to be a tension there. Yeah, this is what Nagel calls the control condition. He says that for you to be morally responsible, you have to have control, which I think is a much better way to parse this question than like choice, because it's very hard to make sense of what we mean by saying someone could have done otherwise, given that all they did is what they did. But we have an easier time, I think, making sense of saying something is under one's control or not. We can give, for example, really textbook cases where, you know, if I build a mind control machine and take over your body and go on a killing spree, we don't feel like you're held morally responsible for that because you weren't under your control at that point in time. So we can make sense of the idea of control, you know, people having a gun to their head, really obvious cases of coercion. Um, And then the scary part is once you implement that fairly plausible principle with basic understandings of psychology and, and modern science, you quickly sort of lose any grip on anything that doesn't, that actually meets that control condition. Yeah, like sometimes people will bring up tumors and how if you if you have a brain tumor that kind of makes you behave in a way that you've never behaved before and then you remove the tumor and then you stop behaving that way, which there are tons of cases of that happening. Well, maybe not tons, yeah, but there's, so there's the, some famous ones. One of the ones. scariest ones, right, the guy with the, who became a pedophile when he uh, had a brain tumor and when they took it out, it, the pedophilic urges went away. But like... This this is the problem, and this is why Nagel's paper on moral luck starts with a quote from Kant, where Kant's trying to kind of deny that um, luck actually can have a role in moral considerations is because Kant is deeply afraid of the idea that once you let uh, luck in the door at all, um, it sort of undermines everything. And that's why he, why Kant focuses on the goodwill as being the thing that is free of luck. Not, you know, in this case, the luck of consequences. But I think the Nagel paper makes a good point that when you take into account constitutive luck, the kind of luck that determines what kind of character you develop, you realize that the goodwill itself is is clearly a, a construct built out of luck, just like everything else. So yeah, I like that thing you said at the beginning about the control principle being something, mm-hmm. a way to circumnavigate the whole, could you have done otherwise road, which is a road I never want to go down. Like I, mm-hmm. I couldn't, I could never put my finger on why, but it always just struck me as like, there's nothing fruitful that's going to happen if we go down that road of like, could have done otherwise. But yeah, the control, the idea of how much control you have does seem like a really useful way to talk about that. But even if you adopt that control principle, like that way of viewing morality, you still fall into this problem of moral luck. So just for people who have never heard of the term, can we take a couple steps back and just talk about the big picture of what moral luck is supposed to be and why it's a problem? Yes, the term itself refers specifically to situations where someone is held morally responsible for something that is beyond their control. That is a case of moral luck. So it combines luck, something being beyond your control, with a sort of moral judgment about your... Well, as we've been saying here, right, this is a big problem because 
we only seem able to hold people responsible for things that are under their control, but luck seems to pervade everything. So you start off with the luck of consequences and everyone has to basically acknowledge that like there are a variety of situations where whether and someone did something immoral or moral when it comes to the consequences is largely the result of factors that were beyond their control. And then sort of from there, you you move to also luck of circumstances that like if you happen to have the really bad luck of being put in, you know, being born in 1930s Germany, you face very, very different moral problems and challenges than someone being born in a variety of other places um, in the universe. So how do you account for those the typical answer in both cases is to collapse into moral judgments about the intentions of the actor, the Kantian will again. And there the problem is what, what they call this constitutive luck, which says all, all of your beliefs, all of your desires, all of the features of your personality that you think of as you were you know, born long before you had any say in the situation and that everything that is that comes from them is by extension the result of luck. So when you add all of that together, it seems like there's nothing left for anyone to hold morally accountable. It's, it doesn't make sense anymore to say someone did something right or wrong in such a way that we should punish them or praise or blame them in any kind of way. Right. The classic case being the, you know, the drunk driver, two people, both drunk drive, one person gets home safely, another person who left two minutes later, you know, someone kind of trips out into the street and then they hit and kill a person. And the behavior and intentions of the two actors were identical. But one of them is now, you know, almost considered a murderer. And the difference was just luck. And, uh, you know, like you said, you can't really take credit for not living in the Nazi era in Germany. You know, the, the odds are you would not have tried to kill Hitler or something like that. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, it's worth mentioning, too, that, you know, God could have changed a few of your genes and you may never have doubted. So if belief is this, you know, is, is the main criterion for whether you're going to heaven or hell, you know, God could have just changed a couple of your genes and you wouldn't have any interest in this podcast. You know, or you could have just been born in a different place. You know, that's the difference of eternal conscious torment or not. Yeah. The the free will problem, if you take it seriously, I think raises real issues for all of the classic accounts of theology and sin. The folks I know who successfully reintegrate it generally take a view that, like, God is infinitely forgiving and will... You know, if you get to the pearly gates, right, and you are like, oh, well, God exists. I guess I believe in God now. God's like, great, come on in. Like, there's no haha, got you. You didn't figure it out ahead of time for them. The only other way to go with it in the Christian worldview is to end up a Calvinist, which is the worst of all possible views about not having free will and still having some kind of moral responsibility. It's just a terrible, dreadful view. Um, but I also want to point out just one quick thing here. We want to be careful and distinguish between moral judgments and judgments of moral responsibility. So it's wrong to kill somebody and it stays wrong to kill somebody, even if you didn't have control over it. The control part matters when we decide, you know, are you morally responsible for the immoral thing that you did and what level of punishment should we apply to you? Yeah, that's actually a really important point. I was I usually frame it in a different way. I usually say, 
Um, mm-hmm. You know, there's a difference between causal responsibility and moral responsibility, but it's the same. That is another good distinction, yeah. It's the same basic point that it doesn't seem to have been internalized by a lot of people who seem to think that once you accept that there's no free will, there's just no moral responsibility and you can't like punish anyone for anything. But if if you're taking one question on the one hand, which is, are we free agents? And then another question, which is, are we morally responsible for what we do? You can answer either of those questions any way you want. Like you can be a free will skeptic and have any view of moral responsibility. Like there's no necessary connection between your answers to those two questions. Like they're obviously related, but you can have, you know, you can have any answer to the free agents question and any answer to the moral moral responsibility question. I suppose that's true in principle, though. Clearly, I think there is a right answer to how to combine these two things, which I mean, at least up to a point, I don't have a perfect resolution for how we should apply moral responsibility. But for example, I think it's wrong to apply more. Like, I think there's an objectively like fact of the matter that it's wrong to say, you know, we don't have free will in this robust sense in the way that we've been talking. But it's still okay to punitively torture people who do wrong things. Like, I think you I think you have to buy on this view, for example, that no one deserves punishment, like in a robust, like um, retributive kind of way. But I don't know if that's necessarily the case, though, because, I mean, you could still say you could still be a consequentialist about suffering and you could still try to set things up in such a way to minimize it, even if you don't believe anyone's ultimately responsible. Like, you could well, be so a harsh retributivist. I, yeah. um, if it, I mean, I don't think it does work, but you could be a harsh retributivist if it turned out to actually work. Like, you could believe, you could totally reject any notion of free will and believe in the death penalty and, you know, Roman crucifixion if you wanted to. I mean, you shouldn't because obviously that doesn't work, but, you know, I'm just saying in principle there's no contradiction there. Yeah, no, I wasn't saying you couldn't believe in having the death penalty. I was saying you couldn't believe that someone deserves to be put to death. You could believe on the utilitarian model, as you say, that people to death because it will deter people from committing high crimes. But you can't say the person who ends up getting put to death deserves to be put to death. There is no deserving suffering in a world where no one has any robust control over their actions. Oh, okay. So that's the moral responsibility versus moral judgment point. Does that amount to any practical difference, though? Like if our response to crime, for example, is the same, then is it just a question of what language we're using? You know, if you're going to say this person isn't ultimately responsible, so they don't deserve the death penalty, which I'm against the death penalty, to be clear. But if our action is the same, is there a difference? Yeah, so I think it may, it does, I do think it makes a difference. I do think there's situations in which this has real implications on the ground. For example, if you, well, here, here's what I would say, right? If you buy this view and you look seriously at the empirical information about the way that different criminal justice systems work, I think you pretty much end up having to reform, for example, the American criminal justice system is just not not at all in keeping with these kinds of principles. It's this horrible mess of retributivism and claims about um, deterrence and almost no attempts really, like, like very, very limited attempts at rehabilitation, which leads to this very high recidivism rate. So like, it, it makes a lot more sense on this view to adopt something you know, like the Swedish kind of um, European models of more reform oriented where you have to get over the 
the the discomfort that some people have with seeing that someone who's done something immoral is going to a place where they're not going to be sort of de facto tortured, which is what we kind of do in our system right now. They're going to be treated as human beings and they're going to be taught a bunch of skills that'll make it functional for them to reintegrate into society in a healthy kind of way. Like that's more plausibly what follows from this kind of position in terms of policy. So that's why I think it doesn't, it isn't just like, why does it matter how we put this? I think how, and and like, I think you see this in in political uh, distinctions as well, that like folks who tend to be more conservative tend to disagree about the prevalence of luck in the world, tend to see the world as more of a just world where people who are suffering are suffering because they did something to deserve it. And so they they tend to adopt sort of more punitive kinds of models as a result, um, whereas liberals generally tend to take the opposite views. Right. Whereas both of our position is that it's basically just luck all the way down. Yeah, all the way down. Right. Ultimately, your disposition, your personality, your temperament, you know, your inclinations, these things are all the result of luck, not just your circumstances and the, you know, time and place you find yourself in. That's possible. Now, your responses to the words that I am saying, the words that I am saying, these are all the result of factors antecedent and prior to our control, as Nagel would say. So there are some objections to moral luck that I imagine some people listening might have. Um, mm-hmm. The first one would be sort of what I just said. Look, I can't control what happens to me, but I can control how I respond to my circumstances. So you're, I think this is where your distinction that you brought up earlier is very valuable, the causal distinction, where I'm not denying causal efficacy, right? I can intercede and stop one person from hurting another person. I have that capacity. It's a que- separate question of whether I chose to have that capacity and whether I had control over that particular choice and whether I should therefore receive praise if I successfully save the person versus blame if I don't or if I refuse or freeze or whatever happens. Um, I, you know, I, I think that we can, many of us can and therefore should try to help people and do better things. We should just do so with the continual recognition that we are lucky enough to be able to do so and that people who aren't able to, people, even people who are deeply immoral, are, are there as a result of bad luck. And so we, we seek to, I, I seek to try to engender, you know, compassion and humility when I try to approach moral judgments while at the same time holding fast to saying, no, that was wrong and we should stop people from doing that again. I, I mean, my own response to the, I can't control what happens to me, but I can control how I respond. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can respond however you want to your circumstances, but you can't take responsibility for having those wants in the first place. Like you have these inclinations. Yeah. And you can't ultimately take responsibility for having the inclinations that you have and then, you know, the intensity of those inclinations. So, you know, people will admit, hopefully, that they can't control the circumstances of their life, like what time and place they were born in. You know, they'll admit that that part Mm -hmm. is luck. But then they'll try to, you know, maintain this kind of area of control where it's like, I can control how I respond to my circumstances. And it's like, that's not really wrong you know, you, you can respond however you want in your circumstances, but you can't control how you want to respond to your circumstances. 
part of what gets really fundamentally spooky about this view for a lot of people and that makes them legitimately press these objections because they're anxious um, is that this really is an attack on the idea of the you in all of the sentences that you just said, that like there is this thing that is a separate, independent, free self that we, we all acknowledge as existing in a deterministic kind of world for the most part, like the vast majority of people you know, acknowledge that there are forces beyond our control outside of the self. But a lot of people hold on to this idea that there's this little realm within the self that is free from those kinds of forces. And what the what the moral luck argument sort of drives home is that 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 realm doesn't exist. It shrinks into non-existence when you're when you're honest about this. Um, and that's that's very existentially unnerving for a lot of people because they want the praise and they want to be able to blame others and they want to, you know, sometimes they even want to be blamed themselves when they do the wrong thing. And I'm sympathetic to that on a practical level. I just think that you can get through the existential crisis to the other side and acknowledge that there isn't free will. There is that that luck drives everything and still like you said, still go about helping people. And and another thing that I want to add here actually um, is we can help by acknowledging that we are susceptible to systems and by changing the systems. So a big thing that goes along with the resistance to the moral luck view is the idea that there is this strongly independent self. And so if someone does something wrong, it's not because they were coerced into that environment or something like that. It's because they're just bad people full stop and they should be put away. And what we now know through modern you know, social science is that there are really obvious sort of causal factors out, out external to the individual that are driving things like crime in a lot of cases. And that if you alleviate those causal factors, you can alleviate things like crime. So it, it gives us a way of redirecting our energy from condemnation towards the individual to the productive restructuring of systems. Yeah. And that's definitely missing from a lot of analyses of you know social problems that i've seen where it does just they seem to think that it does ultimately come down to you're just a bad person there's no one making you do these things but i guess i would still want to push back though where do you do you really think there's no moral responsibility like there's no praise or blame um in a robust sense on uh, if you accept that it's luck all the way down in a robust sense no i really have to say no and i I think that there are still times where it's useful to praise people and useful to hold people responsible for their actions. I I have a much easier time with praising people because there's not a cost, it feels like to me, to positively reinforcing good behavior. The negative using negative reinforcement to me, I think, is the harder question on this view. And I think to justify it. I think we, what we have to say is that negative reinforcement is an evil in a sense is a bad thing and that it can only be justified when there is clear evidence that it produces a great deal of good and that that good needs to be distributed in as equitable a way as possible, including to the people who are suffering for, you know, the suffering through the negative repercussions of their actions. See, I was always kind of confused by that view because I I never thought that praise and blame were really on the line if, you know, if I accept that it's luck all the way down. You know, like when I first read the Nagel essay however long ago, you know, I was like, I, I can still praise or blame people. I can still say, no, you are a bad person, even if I accept that 
they're just unlucky. Yeah, they're unlucky. That's why they're a bad person, but they're still a bad person. I mean, the their intentions are malevolent and the consequences of their actions are bad. So they're okay, a bad person. Okay, so so you're using I think you and I are using praise and blame here slightly differently. You're using it to mean can I make a moral judgment about them? And I'm using it to mean can I assess them as being morally blameworthy or praiseworthy in a responsibility kind of way. So I totally agree with you that I can say that you know, some political uh, individuals in power right now are deeply, deeply immoral, malignant narcissists who are causing objective amounts of, you know, large quantities of objective harm towards people. Like those are all just facts of the matter. And then like the separate question is, can they be blamed for that behavior? And that I think is the much harder question because you can look at the history, the life of abuse, the the damage that must have been wrought in various kinds of ways and recognize that like, you know, they never had a choice in being this deeply broken person. So do you think you can hate people on a, as a free will skeptic? <laughs> I certainly can achieve the emotional state, um, whether, uh, you know, but it does come that that's where the, the charitability and the humility stuff comes up is that like you do a lot of, you know, there, but for the grace of the void, go I and say that like hate turns to pity a lot of the time is what I experience is that like I, I strongly dislike them and I think they're doing things that are deeply, deeply wrong. And I still, at the end of the day, if I'm going to have to choose between hating them and pity them, I just feel bad for them because their lives are so miserable. And I, I genuinely think that for not all people who do terrible things, but the vast majority, there are some people who it's an unfortunate fact of reality, do a bunch of horrible things and suffer no consequences. Yeah. And they're, they're not leading miserable lives either. They're having a great time. <laughs> but um... yeah. And for those people, like, I mean, I pity them in the sense that I think they are having a good time. I do think that they are, because of their immoral behavior, they are deprived of one of the greatest projects of worth that anyone can engage in, which is understanding and following the moral law and doing right by others. I just like, to me, that is a fundamental good within a life of flourishing, but I don't deny that like they would just reject that. Well, I personally have no trouble hating people and I haven't believed in free will in years. And I, I was always just confused by by, um, you know, free will skeptics when they would say, um, yeah, there's just, there's no reason to hate anyone once you become like a determinist or some variety of free will skeptic. And it's like, what really? Is it, <laughs> what justifies it? I mean, what, what do you, how do you make sense of it? Do you, do you feel like you understand what I've been saying in terms of, you know, I, I see people who are broken and I am sad that they are broken. I guess it just comes back to what I said initially just that your intentions were bad or the consequences were bad or maybe your intentions weren't evil but the consequences were and you just don't care um but there are people who i just see as they are responsible for lots and lots of suffering in the world and mm -hmm. they either don't know or don't care and uh that bothers me i mean i i hate them in the same way that i would hate any physical object that causes a lot of suffering yeah i guess i don't know i feel rage some i feel rage a lot i feel anger um but it doesn't to me hate is a sustained kind of i don't know i don't feel like i have that i mean maybe if i had it it's you know for someone like trump who really does just make me deeply deeply crazy um 
But I don't know. I, I, I feel like whenever I get into that kind of place, I can work my way back out of it in a way that feels like it is the right way to engage with those kinds of emotions. So it's not to say I don't ever wander into that place. I just don't think I stay in that place persistently for very long. Well, do you, do you can do you have any enemies? Not really. Yeah, see, I, I, I have enemy. I like having enemies. I think it grants a lot of meaning to life. And um, there are genuine yeah, villains. No, in I don't the world. like I don't like when people dislike me. I'm very bad at <laughs> being disliked. So well, I don't I don't you're anyone's really enemy. out there for me. Do but you think that you're anyone's enemy? I think there are people who don't like me. I'm certain there are people who don't like me. And I mean, and there are people who I like think of as being on the opposite side of arguments that I think are really important, right? So there are people on Twitter who, like, I guess are my um, enemies in the sense of I think that I want to prevent their worldview from dominating the world in a variety of ways. So, but I don't, I don't like sit around sort of twirling my mustache, thinking about ways to underhandedly get at them or something, which to me is what sort of constitutes a proper enemy. Mm. Um, I have, um, if you don't mind, can I read a quote? Yeah, go ahead. No, this one I just think of a lot. Um, it's a Ram Dass quote. It's super hippie. So, and, and I will say that like, I acknowledge the tension in trying to adopt this kind of view while also maintaining a practical approach to unethical behavior. But I do think it's a nice quote. So that's my preface. Um, he says, uh, when you go out into the woods and you look at trees, you see all these different trees and some of them are bent and some of them are straight and some of them are evergreens and some of them are whatever. And you look at the tree and you allow it. You see why it is the way it is. You sort of understand that it didn't get enough light and it, so it turned that way and you don't get all emotional about it. You just allow it. You just appreciate the tree. And then the minute you get near and you're constantly saying you are to this or I'm to this, uh, that judgment comes, um, that judgment comes in. And so I practice turning people into trees, which means appreciating them just the way they are. You know, there's a certain state of mind that I'm in sometimes where I could, I could really mm -hmm. love that quote. Um, you're right. It, uh, it is very hippie-ish. And I, <laughs> but, um, I don't know why I, but if I'm in a more like, uh, you know, I need to destroy my enemies type of mindset. I, I definitely don't want to view them as trees because there are people with immense power who are destroying the possibility for organized human life in the future. And there are, what I'm saying is there are genuine villains in, yeah. the, in the human story and they should, yeah. they should, they're, they're worthy of your hatred. They're your enemies. They're, you know, I don't know. That's I paradox. I, <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't see the paradox. I, I like so I said, to me, I, it's, to me, to me, it's a paradox because they're trees. They are there. I mean, like, so this gets into um, when Nagel talks about this in his book, he's tying it to the subjective objective divide. And I think there is something valuable to that, that like from the objective view, we are all trees. And then at the same time, I also understand the subjective need to form these kinds of judgments. And I also think that like there's an objective moral truth out there. So like this view could be put in tension with moral realism, but I try to reconcile the two. And I do think that like it is good to and that we have an obligation to prevent people from doing bad and to try to change the world and make people do good and reconciling that with this acknowledgement that we are all trees is hard. It's not, that's the paradox for me. Um, but I don't think I can get there by pretending that we are not all trees, nor can I get there by pretending that we don't have 
some obligation to <laughs> cut down certain trees or prune certain trees or prevent some trees from grow overgrowing other trees. Yeah, and I I definitely say there, but for the grace of the void, I think you said go I. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I definitely say that I'm I have a you know sense of humility about it. I'm not saying that like I'm responsible for the fact that. I'm an objectively better person than other people I could name. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm also not, you know, into false humility either. I'm not going to pretend like, sure. oh, we're all the same. And like, no, there are, like I said, there are genuine uh, villains in the story and they should be identified and, uh, you know, destroyed. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm not a, yeah. I'm not a Christian in the sense that I think we should love our enemies. And I think that um, if you have no enemies, then you you just don't really stand for anything. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I, like, I don't, I still don't love the word enemies, but I certainly have people who I strongly disagree with and who I would stand against in that kind of way that you are describing. Um, I, I guess I think I, I do understand the sort of love the sinner, hate the sin kind of view. Like the thing that I want to love is the phenomenal consciousness that is trapped in this luck machine and is like forced to endure all of this luck and has to be held responsible for things that were beyond its control. Like I have infinite compassion for that being trapped inside of all of this nonsense. And that, that doesn't ever, I guess, fully go away for me, no matter how much I think that someone is, you know, all the, all the immoral things. Right. It it really just depends what mood you catch me in. I mean, like, Sometimes I'm like how I'm sounding now and other times I sound like the hippie guy talking about how we're all trees. It really just depends on the day. And I think that's that's realistic because I don't think there's a resolution to this problem. I think this is a kind of like the hard problem of consciousness. I'm a, I'm a bit of a mysterian about this. I think that this is true and it's sort of our jobs to wrestle with it for our whole lives and do the best we can. But that may, the best we can is unlikely to be come up with a theoretical solution to this problem that is satisfying on all fronts. So let me bring it back to moral luck. You know, Nagel identifies four different types of luck. I think you could mm-hmm. collapse them into three and maybe two, arguably. But could you? Do yeah, you have but, those on hand right now? The four different types of luck. I do. I mean, I've read this book. Oh, do, do you just know them off so the top of your head? Yeah, I just had to know oh, them all. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> I teach it every semester to almost all my classes too. Yeah, so it's circumstantial luck, consequential luck, um, uh, luck of constitution. And what he calls luck of antecedent circumstances, which is, as far as I can tell, sort of a catch-all for basically just reiterating determinism, saying that all events have a prior cause. And that one is probably sufficient, like, as you say, is is sort of collapsible into the constitutive and circumstantial luck. So you can't be, you know, your circumstances are luck. You can't take responsibility for those. Your nature and your constitution, the inclinations you have, are luck. And, you know, Mm -hmm. if you have the ability to resist this inclination, like, no, I need to resist this inclination I have, or I want to empower this other inclination I have, those are just yet more inclinations that you have that you can't ultimately take responsibility for. It's just more luck. So, you know, like we've said a few times now, it's just luck all the way down. Yeah, and I think you can drive that home by doing an activity that I like where you sort of press an infinite regress kind of argument and you ask someone, you know, what is a feature of yourself that 
you feel like you had freedom over or have control over in a robust kind of way? Is it a you know belief or an action, something you've done in your life, et cetera? And whatever it is, you can repeatedly ask. So, um, you know, did you choose to have that particular feature? If the answer is yes, what reason did you choose it for? You know, if the answer is no, then you clearly didn't have control over it if you didn't choose it in that kind of way. Um, and then if they say yes, then we can ask, why was that reason effective for you rather than some other reason, right? You know, why did you, why did you have enough motivational character or whatever to choose to help someone rather than not in a certain situation? And you can keep applying this regress of, you know, what's the reason? What made you the sort of person that that reason was applicable to you? Did you choose to have the features that made you sensitive to that reason? What was your reason for choosing those features? And eventually you get back to something that's very clearly beyond your control. Yeah, I think it can be helpful to give like a concrete example, like um, mm -hmm. even like a non-moral one, just like choosing to get in shape, which is something I've been right. swearing to do for years now and um, right. just continually failing. If it's something that you want to do, the point is the fact that I even have that inclination in the first place rather than just a total absence of that inclination is something that I, is like utterly mysterious. I have no idea mm -hmm. why this inclination is just prodding at me, you know? Yep. And then it's like, okay, well, you know, I've failed up until now, but let's say that next week suddenly I, you know, I start going again and I go for more than just a few weeks this time to the gym. And it's like, I just keep going and then it's been two years and I go, you know, four days a week or something. Why did I succeed this time? Like, ultimately it's like, I'm, I'm lucky to be the type of person to have succeeded, to have the constitution that allowed me mm -hmm. to succeed in these circumstances. It's kind of mysterious for why you fail when you do and why you succeed when you do. And you can obviously apply this to, to like any action, but the, the point that I keep repeating over and over again is that your inclinations just appear in your conscious awareness. You don't really know where they come from. And if you could identify where they come from, then you've just given a causal account of you know, your nature, which is kind of the point to begin with. Yeah. And usually when I ask this sort of game, it, the two concrete categories that I tend to get are really minute examples and really big examples. So some folks will do the like, well, I just chose to raise my right arm kind of example. Um, and that one you pretty quickly find that like, well, why did you raise your arm? Because I wanted to prove that free will is real. Well, why did you want to prove that? Well, because I believe that free will is real. Well, why do you believe that? Well, I just do or something, you know, like you, you eventually get back to something that was beyond their control or same thing with big momentous um, actions like, you know, why did you choose to major in what you're majoring in, in college? Why did you choose this career? You know, um, and with those, I think it can be particularly unnerving for folks because we do, again, we care so much about this personal narrative where we are the sort of central hero figure who is accomplishing things in our lives and leading good lives. And I, I don't even want to take that away from people necessarily. Like, I do think that this view does undermine that. A little bit, but I do still think that you can take pleasure, for example, in doing good things. You don't get as much pleasure out of the feeling of superiority that goes along with doing the good thing, but it still feels really good to help people. So I, I don't think that you can't still have this view of your life as a life of flourishing and pleasure. You just have to acknowledge that, like, you're very lucky that you're getting to have that experience and the people who aren't are doing so because of things beyond their control.
Yeah, that was the that was the next objection I was going to bring up. Uh, you know, okay. I can move Sorry. my left arm or my no, it's good. I can move my left arm or my right arm here, and it's like the thing that I usually bring up. Like you can do that infinite regress move that you just made, which is useful. But sometimes I'll try to take it in a slightly different direction, where I'll say like, "Well, why didn't you kick your leg?" Or why didn't you like? Let's just right. let's name all the things you could have just done to prove that you have free will. Like you could say, "I'm going to think about ham sandwiches right now," and it's like, well. Why ham sandwiches and not pastrami sandwiches? Like, why sandwiches instead of cakes? And, you know, why food instead of cities? Or, you know, instead of cities, why didn't you name movies or something like that? Like, there's all these things that didn't occur to you that didn't appear in your conscious awareness, and um, you don't know why. It's like, it's the same, the, the thing right. that appeared you in your... right-handed, you know? Right, right. And if you, like I said, if you can give a causal account of why you named that thing instead of all the other things... Well, then you've just proven my point about determinism. And if you can't, then it seems like you've you've said that what you did was arbitrary and therefore uh, wasn't something that was under your control. It was something that was the product of a non-conscious force of some sort, either within you or external to you. This shows up in waking life as well, where it's like, you know, even if you get rid of determinism and have indeterminism, that doesn't seem any better because then it's sort of random probabilities that are determining what you do or that are causing what you do rather than what you want is for your behavior to be determined, but you want it to be determined by you in a free and robust and independent kind of way. Um, so if you say, you know, I just raised my my right arm just because I didn't have a reason for raising the right one versus the left one. Um, you're acknowledging that the cause of it was something either subconscious within you or external to you, but either way, it's something that's beyond your control. Have you had any luck with pointing out to people that everything is either random or determined and that those are the only two options? Cause I've tried to use that before and people don't seem to get it. Um, generally speaking, I just focus on the determinism side unless someone specifically brings up the objection of randomness because randomness can get kind of weird to talk about. But if I do, if it does end up in that territory, then I explain why it seems to me that indeterminacy isn't any better or feel any, feels any better on a lot of the things that they actually care about, right? Because like if someone's pushing back, what they really want to be saying is, I get to take responsibility or something. And if what they're saying is my behaviors are the role of the cosmic dice, then I don't see how they get to take responsibility for them. So even if determinism is uh, not true, then that mm -hmm. doesn't get you really out of the problem of moral luck because everything is still either random or determined, first of all. But moral luck is not dependent on determinism. Yeah, I mean, this is why I'm increasingly skeptical that there is something that gets you out of the problem of moral luck. I just think that, like, moral truths are true and also the world is fully determined in this way. And so we're stuck with this paradox. Here, let me quote from the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy mm -hmm. really quick. Sometimes the problem is thought to arise only if determinism is true, but this is not the case. Even if it turns out that determinism is false, but events are still caused by prior events according to probabilistic laws, the way that one is caused to act by antecedent circumstances would seem to be equally outside of one's control. End quote. So yeah, the determinism debate is kind of a red herring, um, which reminds me, so is, I mean, have you been following any of the um, Labette or LeBay study news about how it can't be replicated? Yeah, and I actually, you're talking about the, um, your 
your body sends a signal before your conscious mind does studies yeah that a lot of folks have relied on yeah i stuck i i feel very good about this because i stayed away from those from the free will and i always was like i was very lucky again to have a teacher matt mckenzie who was skeptical of those studies as evidence for there not being free will and so i didn't arguments on them and to find out now that they're not replicable it cost me nothing because i didn't think that we needed to rely on them in the first place i thought the problem was conceptual not empirical in that way exactly like it it i never even understood how it was supposed to prove that we didn't have free will until i realized that um most people are substance dualists intuitively and they thought Mm -hmm. that like oh well first i decide and then my soul will kind of make the brain activity go so my right. decision is going to precede the brain activity. And then they found out it was, you know, the other way around or, you know, at the same time. And then they were like, well, hang on. So yeah. I, I was not operating from those assumptions. So I was kind of confused as to why. I'd... It also just strikes me as a, as a edge case and not core to the debate. We're interested in, like, can you be held morally responsible for something you deliberated about, not something that you happened to do, you know, reflexively before you deliberated about it. And I think that we can pretty clearly say that, like, we can have deliberation about our actions and then act based on those deliberations. And the question is, am I then morally responsible? Yeah, and I've I've been frustrated to see a couple people running around saying, oh, this study can't be replicated, so I guess free will is real now, or like, you guys were wrong, like, determinists were uh, wrong. Yeah, and it's like the Same case. Here. thank you for fixing that. <laughs> it's like the case never hung on these studies, and like, um, yeah, actually Sam Harris said that he always regretted including any discussion of the LeBay yeah. studies in his, um, in his short book, because it's like, it never, it doesn't really matter, like, it's just, mm-hmm. nothing hangs on this. And I mean, like, empirical stuff can contribute to our confidence levels about this in the sense that, like, you know, the tumor stuff that we talked about earlier, we can look at these examples that seem to really lay bare the absurdity of claiming that people have control in a variety of circumstances. But it's the conceptual argument, I think, that gets us from, you know, sometimes people lack control to it's luck all the way down. Right. Since we're, I'd like to recommend a couple further readings for people. You mentioned mm-hmm. um, Thomas Nagel's paper, Moral Luck, which is very good. Mm-hmm. And um, Galen Strawson has an article called um, Luck Swallows Everything. And mm-hmm. also a conversation with Tamler Summers, Galen Strawson and Tamler Summers, called um, You Can't Make Yourself the Way You Are. And those mm-hmm. are, I found both of those in um, Galen Strawson's Things That Bother Me, which is a recent book of his. Do you have any other recommendations, readings for Moral Luck? Not generally speaking, I think the Nagel one is I just I want to impress that upon people as heavily as possible because it's it's only about ten pages and it's very I think relatively speaking readable for for philosophy writing and I think it most cleanly drives home the problem in a way that is that I find that I found very deeply compelling and always will um, so but I do think those other suggestions are good ways to further unpack Nagel's and and other people's approaches to these issues. Have you encountered any anger among your students or anyone else when you start challenging free will? <laughs> um, I mean, a playful kind of frustration that I experience with all of my ethics teaching where my students are, you know, frustrated that things are more complicated <laughs> and harder than, and you know, like understandably so. But I've never like had someone condemn me as a heretic for 
raising these kinds of concerns. Now, that being said, I generally, in my educational role, raise these as problems rather than saying this is absolutely the way things are. Um, so, you know, they can only complain so much that I'm presenting them with things to think about rather than indoctrinating them into a particular view. Um, but yeah, I've not, I've not had, maybe I've had like one or two people on Twitter who think that my views about free will are part of my horrifying liberal, um, you know, views about society and stuff like that. And so they get angry about it tied in with that, but not, well, not so much for my students. You haven't provided very much evidence against that in the, in this interview so far. <laughs> Which is, I haven't provided much evidence against what? Uh, that this is a part of your, uh, broader liberal worldview. Oh, I do think this absolutely leads to my broader liberal worldview. I like, I think that my progressivism is a direct result of my views about free. I mean, like I was already a progressive by nature, but it definitely enhanced my feelings about things like social justice in a big way. Yeah, I, I actually got a couple angry messages when I talked about free will for the first time. Hmm. Um, really? Yeah, people weren't, and these were from like, you know, atheists who were listening to the atheist podcast. But hang on, the, mm -hmm. Galen, Galen Strawson included um, in the introduction to his book a letter that he got from someone who read one of his articles about free will. And hang on, I just want to quote it really quick. I just want to say that you are the biggest fucking idiot and that this is the worst, most incohesive and absurd philosophical argument I have ever read. Don't write ever again. End quote. <laughs> That's pretty vicious. It's not like it's panpsychism or something. <laughs> Man, panpsychism makes people angry. <laughs> That, it really does. It really does. <laughs> for wholly different reasons. I did, what are the reasons? I, I don't understand. Like, at first, people were just, like, laughing at it. And then in the last month or so, it's transitioned into, like, anger. <laughs> I think that people think that it represents sort of the worst of philosophy, sort of abstract, highly theoretical navel-gazing that doesn't bear out any useful information, either theoretically or in reality. Well, I think solving the hard problem is useful, but <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm not I don't I don't personally feel that about it. I, I do think that it like it doesn't answer the questions that I want answered, as we've talked about before. But I do I don't think that it's like any, st you know, like if you're going to get mad, get mad at Van Inwagen for saying chairs don't exist. Like <laughs> everything that happens after that is how can you complain? Right. <laughs> So are there any arguments for God that give you pause? So I guess we have to define what we mean by God. If we mean a personal God, no. If we mean something impersonal that has features of uh, being the sort of, you know, like I'm, I'm sympathetic, more sympathetic to a Spinozan God that is the underlying substance, the neutral monism that that ties the universe together or something like that, but, or the Tao is another way to put that. Um, but I don't, I don't find much value in calling it God at that point. So I, it, you know, I think to me, we should reserve the concept of God for the personal gods that people tend to worship. And for them, I think there's no good arguments. That gives me serious pause. Do you have a favorite Christian philosopher? Yeah, I don't I don't know if I would like really throw in my lot very heavily with anything. Like I like I enjoyed reading um um Lewis Carroll at various points. Um but Lewis like Lewis Carroll? Am I, am I saying the wrong name? Lewis Carroll was a Christian a Christian philosopher? Am I saying 
Yeah, mere Christianity is what I'm thinking no, that's, of. That's yeah, oh, that's, sorry, Lewis. Lewis, excuse me. <laughs> God, I'm, this is this is a reoccurring theme of my life. <laughs> I, I was like the guy who wrote Alice in Wonderland was a Christian. Yeah, no, C.S. Uh, Lewis. That's what I was. That's what I was thinking of. That's, yeah, this is what happens when you ask me for names off the top of my head. You get <laughs> you get half names. Um, yeah, C.S. Lewis. Um, I was you know sympathetic in some ways when I read Mere Christianity, though not as sympathetic as as my first wife was when she went off to seminary. Um, there's a backstory. Some of the, like, some of the really modern, yeah, just dropping a little backstory information <laughs> there. Um, some of the ones that are like very modern, uh, God is a verb kind of stuff, the process oriented views. Uh, process theology? Yeah, process theology. Uh, God is a verb is by David Cop, uh, Cooper, though he, he may be um, Jewish actually. But he does like Kabbalah mysticism stuff. Uh, yeah, I think he's actually Jewish. Um, but like, I don't really make that much of a distinction between the Jews and the Christians, to be honest. Oh, um, interesting. I mean, you know, I'm joking in a little bit. Like, they are from the same book. Um, I realize that they distinguish between each other. But I do think that like, there's a there's a value in in assessing the Abrahamic traditions, all three of them, as a kind of unit. Well, one group has uh, superior IQs. I'm told. That's true. Standard deviation better, you know. <laughs> yeah, you just got in the debate about that. How did that go? Oh, it went fine. It went well, except for now Bo's been fired. So I feel bad about that fact. I'm not, I don't know that those things contributed to him being fired, but. Um, I was going to ask, did he, because I just saw that he got fired earlier today on Twitter. Did, so you don't know if he got fired because of your conversation? He claims that he so he doesn't he just says he doesn't know exactly why he got fired. He um, says that he had previous conversations with administrators who asked him to tone back some of his language, especially language about parasites in a particularly badly worded tweet. And then, you know, he Aaron and I speak for another 15 minutes or so about the Bo Weingard firing, free speech, and the Red Scare. If you'd like the patron-only extended version of this conversation, you can subscribe over at patreon.com counter for as little as a dollar per episode. Speaking of which, I have a new patron to thank, Jeremiah Pensinger. Thank you, Jeremiah. And thank you to my Hall of Fame patrons, Jesta, Phil Stillwell, Richard Crossan, Pre-Nifty, and Rory B. Murkowski. And you can support this show on a per-episode basis at patreon.com slash counter where you can get early access to every episode and access to bonus episodes. If you don't have the money to support on Patreon but you didn't want to see Grandma again anyway, you can follow our social media on Twitter and Facebook, subscribe on YouTube, leave a five-star review, or tell your friends about the podcast. You can also subscribe to and leave a review of our sister show, Walden Pod. And if you can't get enough of Aaron Rabinowitz, you can listen to our conversation about neutral monism on Walden Pod, set to come out any day now. You can also listen to our conversation on the Right to Reason podcast, linked below, and you can also listen to Embrace the Void or Philosophers in Space. In the show notes, I've linked to Thomas Nagel's paper, Moral Luck, as well as Galen Strawson's work. By the way, the new transition music you've been hearing is from Achika Nito and was used with permission. He's one of the most talented guitar players I've ever heard, so definitely check him out. Our theme music was written and performed by the band Whalers. The song is called Magic Tricks and was used with permission. Thank you for joining me today. I've been Emerson Green, and I'll talk to you next time. Thank you.